Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about one of the fiercest and bloodiest political rivalries in history. This was a decades-long feud that took place between Brunhilde and Fredegund. These were two Merovingian queens. They ruled over Frankish kingdoms in the 6th century CE. Uh, part of the Merovingian dynasty, which ruled Francia, largely speaking what we today call France, although it extended into you know modern-day Germany, Switzerland, Italy, Spain, and the Low Countries. And while these two women were never officially crowned in their own right, I mean, Frankish Salic law prohibited women from holding, I mean, everything from property to crowns, they did effectively throughout their careers rule their respective, you know, queendoms, I guess, nonetheless, if not officially, in real terms, very much so. Um, after coming into conflict with one another in the early years of becoming queens, uh, the hatred between these two never lessened and it fueled all sorts of stuff. Uh, all sorts of very nasty stuff. Assassinations, intrigue, blood and guts, and, oh, mate, of course, horrible murder. Don't worry about that. And also quite quite a bloody lot of it, as you'll see. Uh, this is what they're famous for, and it is, of course, what we'll be focusing on for much of the episode. Don't even worry about that. But it is worth noticing that there was a little more going on with both of them other than this political rivalry, rivalry particularly with Brunhilde. Brunhilde acted as a region across three generations of Merovingian descendants, and she was a very able administrator. Uh, she was a very, uh, you know, very talented politician. She was a, a quite a gifted diplomat. Uh, Fredegund, on the other hand, well, I mean, uh, she was okay. I'll try to be diplomatic. She was, she was cunning. She was hard-hearted, and. Um, yeah, look, I'm trying to find a nice way to say it, but no, honestly, I don't know if there is one. She was just a ruthless murderer, essentially. Uh, anyway, all the stuff you love coming up in this episode, don't you even worry about it. It's nice to get a bit of uh, nice to have a bit of history from er the early Middle Ages. Not too often that we get across stuff from this period. Before we begin, however, I want to thank Mariana for the uh, the topic suggestion. Absolutely excellent one. Uh, so cheers very much, Mariana, old mate. Alert listener Mariana sending this one in. Appreciate being put into this story. Never even heard of these two bitter foes before, uh, before Mariana wrote in. So thanks very much to you, mate. But anyway, let's get off to it. Let's get to it. Off we go. Uh, let's get stuck in, have a chat about Brunhilde and Fredegund, these two feuding queens. Here we go. So we're going all the way back here. Going all the way back to 561. 561 with the death of Clothar, king of the Franks. Now, this is before the days of inheritance by primogeniture, when the eldest son of a king would inherit the entire kingdom. No, no, no. This is before that. In these days, you had to split up your realm between all of your sons, right? Now, it wasn't necessarily split up equally. Usually, you know, the eldest son would get the lion's share, but still, all of the sons expected a little bit of, a little piece of the pie, and rather than, you know, it, the kingdom just going to one of the sons, you'd actually have to split it up. And this obviously, you know, had a bunch of problems involved with, you'd weaken your kingdom and what have you. It was harder to hold on to a, you know, a, 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 cent a centralized, uh, unified uh, realm. But, the real problem it involved, right, was the actual succession process itself. Led to some very messy successions. Did this, uh, you know, this partitioning of realms after uh, after the death of a king, um, and of course a lot more besides that. 
plots, assassinations, all sorts of stuff. These, you know, brothers would turn against each other in attempting to secure more power for themselves at the expense of each other. Dad's given me a kingdom. He's given my brother a kingdom. Well, if I knock off the brother, who's the who's the heir to the kingdom? Look at look at this. It's his younger brother, yours truly. So all sorts of uh, nasty stuff would go on after a after a succession like this. Anyway, when Clothar the first died, Clothar the first king, the Franks, great big kingdom that he had. He he had four sons. And he divided this kingdom up between, you know, the four of them, as you'd expect. The four sons being Chilperic I, Sigebert I, Guntram, and Charibert I. Now, you need to remember the first two, Chilperic I and Sigebert I. Chilperic and Sigebert, they're going to be major players today. They're very important characters indeed. Guntram becomes a bit more important later on. Uh, he has, a, he has a, a small but important role later on in the story. Uh, Charibert, however... I mean, you can forget about him straight away. He, he died not long after his dad, and his very small part of the realm was, was again then partitioned amongst his brothers. So the main three brothers, Chilperic and Sigebert, remember them, Guntram coming in later on. Now, an important difference later, uh, back then as well, right, was that there was no expectation of monogamy. Uh, that This part of Christian doctrine hadn't really caught on in this part of the world, uh, particularly amongst royalty, and it was very, very common for a king to have multiple wives and concubines. So... After Clothar carved up his realm like this, after his sons, you know, took their respective thrones, their smaller kingdoms here, many of them were cutting about, getting stuck in with a whole a whole range of birds, right, in various states of uh, sort of officialness. Uh, Chilperic and Guntram particularly, they're going around rooting whoever, from slave girls to noble women. Chilperic had set aside his first wife, in fact, a woman named Odovera. She had, she'd been set aside, uh, sent off to a convent, um, uh, in favour of one of Chilperic's slaves, who he seemed absolutely infatuated with. And this slave, of course, was none other than Fredegund, who very cleverly took advantage of this. She, ingra- she ingratiated herself with Chilperic to the point that, again, not only did he send his first wife off back into a convent, right, he also ended up taking Fredegund, this, this you know, slave girl, as his queen, ruling the kingdom of, no- of his kingdom, Neustria, at his side. So, You'd think, bit of a scandal, but having a former slave as your queen, but no, that's what Chilperic did. And honestly, you know, while some people weren't too happy about the the enormous, uh, the, the astronomical rise of, uh, of Fredegund here to, to become the effective queen of a realm, it, it wasn't really that out of keeping with what would happen uh, in terms of, you know, kings hopping into bed with, uh, with this person, that person, everyone back then. Anyway, there are some people, however, some, some important people who aren't very impressed and see Chilperic's uh, conduct as dishonourable and, and unbefitting of a king, and uh, namely the person who is the sort of the least impressed about this is Sigebert, his brother. Uh, he decides that he's going to take an altogether different tack. He's not going to go down the roots of his brother, but he's shagging any, you know, anyone who's looking at him. Uh, instead, he decides he's going to uh, take a much more, I guess, hmm, politically uh, beneficial route with this sort of stuff, but also one that I guess by modern standards holds up a little bit better. I mentioned before that there were often power struggles between brothers after a succession. Uh, I talked about how new kings would, uh, you know, often look for a way to bolster their power across any newly partitioned realm that had just been divvied up after the death of their father. Well, Sigebert decides that, you know, rather than going around rooting everyone, he decides instead that his best course of action is to strengthen his his you know fledgling kingdom here with a with a political alliance that will align him with a a neighboring power namely the Visigothic kingdom he gets in touch with the Visigothic king a bloke whose name is Athanagild now the Visigothic kingdom it uh, in those days took up much of modern day Spain it actually stretched all the way across the south coast of modern France at its height very very powerful ally to have indeed 
And Sigurd, he reaches out, he, he, goes, he gets in touch with Athanagild and says, listen, mate, I want to marry one of your daughters. Now, Athanagild was just as keen on the idea, you know, this, this kingdom, um, uh, Sigurd's kingdom of Austrasia was still quite a powerful one to have, even if it had been, you know, carved up or whatever. Uh, and so the two, these two kings, they're like absolutely dead set on the idea, really, really good. And uh, Athanagild sets up Sigurd with his daughter, Brunhilde, right? So this is obviously one of the main characters here of the story today. The two were married in 567. Great big ceremony, huge celebration, big bloody deal, whole lavish feast, all the rest of it. And it it shifted the political landscape quite significantly. It bolstered the power of, of Sigurd. It bolstered the power of his kingdom, Austrasia. And it kind of put his brothers to shame in terms of now the political connections that Sigurd had because he could call on his ally over in the Visigothic kingdom, uh, you know, for aid in the uh, in the event of a war or something like that. Now, as you might expect, the uh, the expansion of influence and power here, uh, from from Sigurd didn't go down too well with his brothers, particularly with Chilperic. Chilperic is really not a fan of this move, and he responds. He responds here. This is quite amusing. By also getting in touch with Athanagild and saying, hey, listen, mate, you got any other daughters going spare because I'm also looking for a wife here, right? And Athanagild, again, happy to oblige, happens that he does have another daughter. This one's name is Galswintha. And so Chilperic just copied the same move from his, brother, from his brother's playbook. But I mean, look, it worked. By the end of 567, he is also married to a Visigothic princess, two brothers married to two sisters, both of them claiming an alliance with the Visigoths. And you'd think, mate, all right then, no dramas, familial alliances, a vested interest in keeping the peace between all these siblings. You know, as I say, a pair of brothers married to a pair of sisters. They, uh, you'd think that these family ties would do very well in terms of, uh, you know, stabilizing the uh, the the tension between uh, between these kingdoms but obviously that wasn't what happened this would be a, a very boring episode of half ass history if that were the case uh, and the reason that it didn't work out is very simple there's only one reason really and it is Fredegund as it turns out Fredegund didn't really like being chucked out by Chilperic she had quite enjoyed being queen and she wasn't going to be set aside quite so easily and have this upstart Visigothic princess come and take her place at Chilperic's side no thank you mate so Fredegund using her feminine wiles she worked her way back into Chilperic's bed very swiftly indeed I tell you this she didn't muck around the new wife can bloody go to hell because uh, because Fredegund's out on the prowl she soon reclaimed her position as Chilperic's favourite, even with Gal Swintha, you know, having moved across half a bloody Europe to uh, to to become the queen, to become Chilperic's queen. And as you can imagine, I probably don't need to tell you, Gal Swintha, not a, not a very big fan of this development. And she goes, look, I've had enough of this, had a gutful of it. I'm, uh, I'm cross as anything, mate, and I'm going to get out of here. You can bloody take, your, take your, your old girlfriend back and I don't care. I'm going back to be dad's place. She wants to leave Chilperic to the point that she actually offered to leave behind her quite considerable dowry, right, and return back to her home. And Chilperic, you know, listens to this. He considers it. He goes, okay, well, you know, she's not happy. She wants to leave. What am I going to do about it? What, what, what are we going to have happen here? And let me tell you what happened. Uh, she was murdered in her bed. She was strangled by a slave who was, in all probability, acting on the orders of Fredegund and that was the end of Gal Swintha, a brief cameo appearance in this episode. Sorry about that, old mate, but uh, that's the end of her story. She was just strangled in her bed because she got on the wrong side of Fredegund, the, the first of very many murders that will take place uh, thanks to Fredegund uh, in, in the rest of the episode. So don't even, don't even worry about that. And, uh, 
you know, look, while uh, grief and, and mourning can... It can look very different from person to person. Everyone grieves and deals with loss in different ways. Um, Chilperic certainly took a very interesting approach to dealing with the death of Galswintha because he married Fredegund three days after she died. So this wasn't a great look for Chilperic. Certainly what didn't reflect too well on his new wife, Fredegund, Fredegund his new queen, right? And the death of Galswintha and the insult of marrying Fredegund just days later inflamed a furious hatred between Brunhilde and Fredegund. I mean, look, murdering someone's sister and marrying her widower days later will do that, I suppose. Anyway, Brunhilde, she's mad at Cutsnake. She goes to her husband, Sigurd, and she says, listen here, mate, your brother, he's just killed my sister and he's now with that Fredegund. You never liked her. She's probably behind it all. We need to do something. And Sigurd goes, mate, look, I'm I'm." bloody dirty about it too. What do you reckon we do here? What are we What are we going to do? We're going to go after my bastard brother. And Brunhilde goes, mate, absolutely we are. Listen, you married me for the political connections. So did your brother, except he's murdered his political connections. And how do you reckon my old man's going to feel about that? And Sigurd goes, mate, that is a very bloody good point. Let me tell you. I mean, he's not going to back Chill Peric, is he? Especially if we're going after him for killing your sister, his daughter. Yeah, I mean, look, no, nah, let's do it. Bugger him. Let's do him in, take his kingdom. So, at Brunhilde's urging, right, this escalates into a, full, a full-scale war. Sigurd attacked Chilperic, fought a long and drawn-out campaign against his very own brother, which, again, isn't, that, isn't actually that uncommon during this period, although the murdering of wives and sisters certainly didn't always come with the territory. And this conflict took years, years and years and years. But even this wasn't totally unusual for the time. Families squabbled over this title on that bit of land for generations, never mind just a couple of years. But it was a few years of fraternal conflict involved here, but Sigurd slowly but surely gained the upper hand against his brother and ultimately won the war. Or so it seemed. Austrasia defeated Neustria here. The Kingdom of Austrasia handily defeated Neustria after a couple of years. And Sigurd was poised to take over his brother's kingdom and add it to his own. He's stoked about this. Bloody loving life. Excellent. Going around, bloody high-fiving all of his courtiers, all of his knights. Good on you, Brunhilde, for giving me this the idea. You know, you got me a little son now, too, to inherit these kingdoms when I die. You love to see it. Everything's coming up, bloody, uh, everything's coming up Sigurd here. And then in 575, right, as this conflict is kind of wrapping up, as Sigurd and Brunhilde are in the process of consolidating rule over their new conquests, you'll never guess what happened. Bloody old mate Snake in the Grass Fredegund, she hasn't stopped plotting here. She's not ready to give up. So she hires some assassins to use poison weapons to stab old, poor old Sigurd to death, just as he's ready to take over his new kingdom. This conquest is nearly complete. He's poised to take over the new kingdom, and that's the, that's the end of him, mate. He's dead. He's dead. And worse still, Brunhilde taken prisoner, taken prisoner by her sister-in-law kind of thing. I don't exactly know the familiar relation between the two of them, but it doesn't matter because she's locked away, as is the young son and heir that she'd had with Sigurd, right? Absolute disaster scenario. Bloody disaster for her, disaster for Australia. And you'd think, well, this would be the end. Fredegund has prevented Chilperic from losing his kingdom. He's eliminated the principal rival to the throne here. And he's captured, and she's captured his, uh, you know, the wife and heir of, uh, of poor old Sigurd who's been, who's been done in here. But Brunhilde, she's not ready to tap out just yet. Let me tell you that. And she finds a surprise ally. Oh, mm, eh, mm, maybe not a surprise ally. I was going to say she finds a surprise ally. But now that you think about it, not really a surprise ally whatsoever. Because these two had a lot in common, actually. While imprisoned, Brunhilde makes friends with none other 
than Ordovera. Remember her? Chilperic's first wife, mate. The one who had been set aside, sent off to the monastery. And it turns out she's not so hot on Fredegund either, as it turns out. These two women, they hatch a plot together. One that is of mutual benefit for them both, right? Ordovera, don't forget, was the first wife of Chilperic. She still has got her eyes on maybe securing a bit of a legacy for herself, right? And her kids. And on top of that, wants to get back on back with the uh, back against Fredegund, right? And uh, whereas on on you know Brunhilde's side, she wants to well escape from prison, reclaim the kingdom for her young son, and obviously also get her own back against Fredegund. So the two of them, they they put their hands together, they put their heads together, and Ordovera um, makes uh, quite an interesting suggestion. She had a son with Chilperic. His name was Merovet, right? And uh, when he came to visit his mum, right, imprisoned as she was, she suggested that he marry Brunhilde, right? This is a great move for him, don't forget. He has a claim to the kingdom of Neustria as he is the son of the current king, even if his mum had been set aside. And he would also, by marrying uh, Brunhilde, he would also gain a claim to the kingdom of Austrasia as well, as she's obviously the queen regent. So, Despite Fredegund's efforts to remove her stepchildren from the equation, other potential heirs, whatever else, right, this is now shaping up to be a very good outcome for both of them. Merovech obviously agrees to the plan. He and Brunhilde, they're duly married, despite the fact that technically he is her nephew as she was married to his dad's brother. Don't worry about that. This marriage now gives Brunhilde access to a sizable army through her new husband, which quickly secures her freedom, and she heads back to Austrasia to take her throne as the regent for her young son, Childebert II, the son of Sigebert. What about Merovech? Well, unfortunately for him, he got in trouble with his dad. When Chilperic found out what Merovech had done, he actually did not, uh, Chilper, uh, sorry, Merovech didn't have his ambitions to become king realised. The Merovingians had this really weird thing. This is how his dad punished him, and you're going to be surprised by this. It's very, it's very strange indeed. The Merovingians had this weird thing. All the men back then, in in across all the Franks, right across Frankie, whatever else, they wore their hair quite short, right? That was the that was the in fashion look at the time for Franks uh, during this uh, this period in history. They wore their hair quite short, except the Merovingians always wore their hair long. The Merovingian men wear their their hair very long indeed, right? Now. This next bit sounds made up, but I, I, t- I can guarantee you it is 100% true, right? Under the traditions of the Merovingian dynasty, a man with short hair couldn't rule. So if you went bald, mate, you're just bloody out of luck. If you didn't have long hair, you weren't fit to be king. It was as simple as that. This is not a joke. It's, this is actually what happened, right? Men with short hair couldn't rule. And it meant that, again, 100% true. If you cut a Merovingian's hair short they would be excluded from the line of succession. Imagine that. You go to the barbershop for a short back and sides on the weekend, and all of a sudden you've lost your bloody kingdom, mate. You need long hair to be a Merovingian king. And so what happens is Chilperic captures his son Merovich, right? He tonches him, sends him packing off to become a monk, and takes him out of the picture and he can no longer inherit. Never mind that his hair will eventually grow back. Once you've had it chopped off, that's it. You're out. Sorry, Merovich, old mate is out of the line of succession, doesn't have a claim anymore. Imagine that. As simple as that. Never mind bloody political assassinations. Just assassinate his bloody hair and all of a sudden he's not in line to the throne. So, I mean... Bit of a dark ending for Merovich. He was so disappointed, so unhappy with himself for having failed in this way. He ends up committing suicide, such as his shame at his failure to secure a kingdom for himself. And that's actually the end of him. But hey, look, this actually suits Brunhilde down to the ground. Their wedding was on shaky ground because, um, you know, 
she was his auntie. So uh, the fact that he's gone after having secured her freedom, after she's there to rule as uh, queen regent for her young son, uh, Childebert II, right? She's actually pretty happy with how it all works out. I mean, Abu, who lost another husband, didn't really like this one all that much anyway, so no no dramas at, at, at all. So this is just the start of her career as queen regent, but really as, you know, one of the, one of the more important leaders, uh, political leaders during this period here. She has outfoxed her ruthless sister-in-law, and now she is essentially ruling Australia in her own right as the Queen Regent. Now, there was a lot of resistance to her rule. I mean, misogyny ran very, very deep. Uh, and it wasn't until she secured the support of her other brother-in-law, Guntram, you'll remember him, that her position became a little more workable. As the Queen Regent, right, once uh, once she got in touch with Guntram and said, listen, mate, you got to support me because these nobles, these barons, they're on my back. They're saying they don't want a, you know, a Queen Regent. They're saying they don't trust me. They don't want a woman in charge. So what are you going to do? you got to back me up. And Guntram, right, I mentioned before that he'd been a bit of a loose unit. He, you know, he's going around, you know, getting on the source, you know, rooting birds, whatever else. He really seems to have straightened out. He's given up all of these sinful ways and he's on the straight and narrow. And as a result, he's got no living children. They'd all died, sadly. Um, and at Brunhilde's urging, he agreed to name her son, his nephew, Childebert II, as the heir to his kingdom, Burgundy, which gave him, Childebert, and also her, kind of, a claim to two of the three Frankish kingdoms. And with her new, you know, much closer alignment with with her brother-in-law Guntram, she's in a much better position to keep these nobles off her back and get on with the business of ruling her kingdom. She's come good here. She's ruling Australia. She's involved with Burgundy. She's got her son set up for a nice little inheritance once, uh, once he comes of age and once his uncle dies. But just as her fortunes have recovered, Fredegund is also doing a good job for herself over there in Neustria. Even though Brunhilde is, you know, kicking goals with both feet as the Queen Regent of Austrasia, Fredegund has also become the de facto ruler of Neustria. It is no secret that she and not her husband, Jill Perrick, uh, rules the kingdom. There are countless examples of her being the one making the decisions, issuing the, the orders, generally just ruling the kingdom. And I'll tell you this, she was not a particularly merciful or forgiving ruler either. Some of the stories that got about around her are particularly nasty. She had a very bad habit of murdering people who got that got in her way, or even people that she considered might get in her way. Maybe they were potential threats to her power. And in particular, as I mentioned before, she went after after her stepchildren uh, in, a, in a major way. She didn't want anyone threatening her line of succession to the, to, you know, her, her kids. Well, I say she didn't want anyone threatening her kids uh, when it comes to inheriting the throne, but she did a good job as it was of threatening her own children. Uh, a lot of her kids died very young, which was very common back then. Um, but at one point, right, when one of her young sons, a, a son named Samson, fell deathly ill with disease, right, rather than look after her, her kid, she sent him away to die to make sure that she wouldn't get sick as well. Uh, you know, only two of her children survived uh, childhood. And even then, she tried to murder one of the ones that did survive, her daughter, Rigonth, right? The story goes that Rigonth was attempting to replace Fredegund. I'm not sure exactly what in what capacity that might have been as even as Chilperic's queen, which is a lot. I don't know. The sources were kind of vague on this, but Rigonth was attempting to worm away into political favour with uh, uh, with Chilperic. But look, obviously, Fredegund didn't like this, didn't like Rid- uh, Rigonth, which... Wasn't very good for your life expectancy, having Fredegund not like you back then. And apparently one day, right, Fredegund tricked Rigonth by taking her to the treasury, opening up a great big chest filled with riches and saying, God, mate, have a, have a look in here. Look at these bloody gold and jewels we got here, right? 
And uh, Rigon, she leans into the chest, has a look. And then Fredegon slammed the lid of the chest down on top of her daughter's head and tried to kill her. Bloody, you know, trying to make a sandwich of her inside this, uh, inside this, this treasure chest. But servants heard the commotion. They rushed in. They pulled the two women apart. Rigon survives. But this is just one story. There are so many that paint Fredegon as a cruel and ruthless queen. And, you know, while there might have been some embellishment exaggeration over the year, she really doesn't seem to have been a nice person. Um, she was big on assassination, loved, loved sending assassins after her enemies, uh, and also loved punishing them when they failed. When assassins failed to uh, eliminate their marks, she chopped their hands off. Uh, she was also a very enthusiastic torture on top of that. She'd happily send all sorts of people off to the rack or to get, you know, mutilated and disfigured, whatever else, uh, or just have them burnt alive. And uh, that was how she ruled her kingdom, uh, you know, as the de facto leader, de facto, de facto ruler of, of Neustria. It was, a, it was very much a reign of terror there. But uh, both Brunhilde and Fredegund ruling their respective kingdoms in their respective ways. And uh, I'm happy to say that Brunhilde was, uh, she was a little less full on than her sister-in-law. Brunhilde honestly did a, did a pretty good job as, as the Queen Regent of Australasia. She, uh, she undertook political reforms, financial reforms, built a lot of stuff, fortresses, churches, abbeys, all sorts. She repaired a lot of the old Roman roads that went through her kingdom. And additionally, she secured the kingdom's financial position and sought out other political alliances through marriage to strengthen her position as the de facto queen of, the, of this kingdom. And things continued like this, very much in this vein, uh, through until the early 580s. Uh, in, in 583, Childebert, um, Brynhilda's son, turned 13, which is the age of majority back then, uh, and he officially took his throne, which, again, officially ended Brynhilda's regency. But, again, only officially, because the, the real situation was that she had a lot of influence over her young son. Again, he's only 13. Uh, and it won't be, you won't be surprised to learn the other Australian nobles who still weren't that keen on her even as a queen regent. They really weren't keen about her still having a, a huge influence over their young king. There were plots to seize the kingdom by, you know, killing her, killing her son, uh, and just installing a new king, although these, largely speaking, weren't even close to successful. Uh, surprisingly as well, Fredegund doesn't seem to have been involved in a lot of these plots uh, because instead she was busy dealing with her problems back in Neustria that began in, uh, in, in 584. In 584, Chilperic was assassinated. A mysterious assassin stabbed him on the way back from a hunt, killing him and throwing Neustria into, a, in, into political turmoil and putting Fredegund in a very dangerous position. So she's too busy worrying about her own skin to go and bloody, you know, try to meddle in the affairs of Australia. In fact, the situation that she found herself in after the assassination of her husband, Chilperic, was almost exactly the same position as Brunhilde had been in after Sigebert's death, really. Dead husband, young heir, hostile nobles, and a neighbouring queen bent on her destruction here. Because of this tenuous position, Fredegund didn't wait around to be captured or murdered. She instead fled Neustria, she took as much of the kingdom's riches as she could carry, and she fled to Paris. Now, this proved to be a bad move, because Brunhilde still hasn't forgiven Fredegund for, well, everything, really. Everything from murdering her sister to murdering her husband. Everything in between those two things as well. Brunhilde used her influence over her son Childebert, the young king, to surround Paris, attempt the capture of Fredegund, right? And now who knows what would have happened if she'd been able to have had her way and, and, and you know, gained final control over her, uh, over her sister-in-law here. But this was not to be. She did not manage to capture her hated rival. 
And it was again, if you'll believe it, because of Guntram, the third brother, the other, you know, the other brother who had, who had um, managed to help Brunhilde secure her queendom. Now he's coming into the rescue for Fredegund. He, uh, he steps in to help his other sister-in-law, and his help followed a similar pattern. He offered to adopt Fredegund's young son, Clothar II, who again technically is the king of Neustria, even if you know his mum was hoping that she'd get a, get a turn as the queen regent. He offers to adopt this young king, putting him, putting him under his protection and legitimising his rule. But in exchange here, in exchange for this, Fredegund would be forced into political exile, She'd be unable to wheel and deal and plot and plan and murder and assassinate. She would be taken out of the picture once and for all. Fredegund, she thinks about it. She goes, okay, well, I mean, it's that or I fall into the hands of my, my you know, angry sister-in-law, my hated rival. So, look, I guess you got me. I'll agree to the terms. I'll secure my, son, uh, my son's kingdom, even at the cost of my political relevance. This is the sacrifice I will make. I will go into exile and I will be, I will be, no, I will be no threat to anyone anymore. Except, of course, she was completely lying. She was absolutely not, had no intention of going through with this. And so after the deal was done, after Guntram, you know, again, quote unquote, adopted his, uh, his nephew, legitimized his rule as this young king. Uh, Fredegund's like, okay, well, yeah, I'll just go off into political exile. And then just didn't. She just didn't do that. She agreed to, but once everything was settled and sorted and Clotho was safe on the throne, she came out of exile, sent assassins to try to kill Brunhilde. They failed. And then framed Neustria's treasure, treasurer for the death of her husband and staged essentially a coup d'etat and became the queen regent. She managed to manoeuvre herself back into a position of power, acting as the queen regent while young Clothar II, her son, you know, as, as he was on his way to becoming of age, she once again was in a position of power and, and ruling over Neustria as its de facto leader. Some very odd parallels to Brunhilde's story from years previous there, uh, except Brunhilde didn't seem to have been quite so liberal with the old bloody assassins being sent out to murder people, you know what I mean? Anyway. Brunhilde, for her part, she's busy, mate. She's busy securing her son's legacy, even with him as king. She's off arranging marriages, negotiating alliances, doing everything she could to set him up for a prosperous reign, especially with all these hostile barons that are breathing down her neck as, as someone with still a lot of influence over the young king. Now, she couldn't go after Fredegund. She couldn't go after Neustria, even in their political we politically weakened position, because of Guntram, right? Guntram at Burgundy had stepped in. They'd back Neustria, as well as backing Austrasia. They're trying to, you know, play play the sort of middleman here between the two. But she still did a very good job of maintaining Australia's fortunes throughout the, uh, the 580s and into the 590s. But then, right, the next big development come, comes along in 592. Guntram, who had been in charge of this, you know, unsteady peace between these two hated rivals here, between these two sisters-in-law, in 592, he died. And uh, as agreed, as you, as you remember, you know, two dec almost two decades previously, Brunhilde's son Childebert was still his, his heir. So Childebert now inherits Burgundy off his dead uncle and now ruled most of Francia in his own right. On top of that, Guntram is now no longer around to protect Fredegund and Neustria. So Childebert and Brunhilde are in a great position and you'll never guess what happened next. Well, you probably will. Austrasia invaded Neustria, obviously taking advantage of the political weakness of Neustria, taking advantage of the fact that Austrasia and Burgundy are now united under one king. They go on the front foot. They attack Clothar II, the, uh, the son of Fredegund. Uh, he's still a kid, right? Childebert, egged on by his mum, waged a campaign of conquest against his cousin. Uh, but 
Interestingly, even though he had this very politically advantageous position, even though he was in control of two kingdoms to his, uh, to his cousin's one, he didn't manage to succeed in his campaign to overthrow Clothar II, and you'll never guess why. He died in 596. He and his wife were poisoned. Fancy that. I can almost hear the sound of your jaw dropping and hitting the floor from here, exalted listener. Because how could such a thing happen? No idea how something like this could come about. It's never actually proven to be Fredegund, but I mean, come on, mate. A direct threat to her kingdom, the child of a hated rival. You don't have to be a rocket surgeon here, mate. Fredegund very probably hired assassins to murder uh, Childebert and his wife. But here's the thing, right? It didn't really do her any good because... and. This is a little disappointing here. I wish I had some kind of exciting climatic conclusion to this heated, fierce, decades-long rivalry between Brunhilde and Fredegon. The two queens are at each other's throats throughout their entire careers here. I wish I could end it in some, you know, very thematic, poetic, appropriate way, but the truth is actually quite boring. In 597, Fredegon just died. Seemingly of natural causes, she just died. I mean, I'm surprised she made it as far as she did, to be honest, with all the intrigue and murder and everything else she got up to. But she died a much more peaceful death than you'd expect, dying one day and kind of cutting the whole story short, you know. Not the arc that we were expecting for this person, but that is what happened. And so I guess Brunhilde won. She outlived her rival and, you know, further the, this, obviously pretty sad about the death of her son, I would imagine, but the death of, of Childebert, the, the king, meant that she was back in charge because Childebert's kingdoms of, Neust- oh, sorry, of, of Austrasia and, uh, and Burgundy, they passed to his sons, right? They passed uh, to uh, Brunhilde's grandsons, Tudebert II and Tuderic II. They inherited Austrasia and Burgundy, respectively. And so now Brunhilde's back in a position of power. You know, these two grandsons, they're both young. Who's there to jointly rule the two kingdoms until they come of age? That's right, baby, Brunhilde. She's back in action, back on top. Can't keep her away from the throne, mate. She's ready to get back to... Well, actually... You could keep her away from the throne because as soon as Tudebert came of age, he actually exiled her from Australia in 599. Oops. Wasn't, apparently, was not a big fan of being bossed around by his grandma. But Tuderic II of Burgundy had no problem being bossed around by his grandma. Uh, and so Brunhilde, even if she lost influence uh, in the Kingdom of Australia, she still was effectively the de facto ruler of Burgundy through her other grandson, Tuderic II. And uh, she continued to rule uh, through her descendant here as we move into the 7th century, as we move into the 600s. But what's interesting about this period in Brunhilde's life, even after the death of Fredegund, is that Brunhilde started to become more and more like her hated and now dead rival. She became more ruthless, more brutal, more murderous. She set her two grandsons against each other. She went and had a whisper in the ear of Tuderic and said, listen here, mate, Tudebert, right? He's, he's got a kingdom that I reckon you should have. Your dad owned that kingdom, and now he's got what's going on there, mate. You could have that. She's seeking vengeance for her exile, right? And she's seeking to, again, unite the realms that she used to rule. She used to effectively rule both of these through her son and her grandsons. Now she's put these two kingdoms at war with one another through Tuderic and Tudebert. And on top of that, she started going around getting into plotting, into planning, assassinations, intrigue, all in a very, very major way here. No, I mean, not to say she hadn't done that before. Most Frankish rulers had, as a matter of course. But she, like, 
really got into it at this point in the 600s. She, she really started getting stuck into plotting against, assassinating her enemies, all sorts of stuff. Throughout the first decade of the 600s, she actually got quite a bit of a, quite a bad reputation as a result, in fact. And uh, this ended up coming back to bite her on the ass a little bit there, let me tell you. Because even as her grandchildren fought each other for their king, squabbling over their kingdoms here, old mate Clothar II of Neustria, right, the son of Fredegund, he's also getting involved. He's fighting Brunhilde for the sake of his mum. He's still angry, still carrying on the family feud here against his, uh, against his aunt. And this three-way conflict between Neustria, Austrasia, and Burgundy, it continued right on through to the 610s, with alliances shifting constantly, the fortunes of war favouring this kingdom, then that kingdom all moving around. It was, uh, it was all a very uh, dynamic and, uh, and quickly shifting situation there. However, Brunhilde, her ruthlessness was finally laid bare in 612 when Tuderic managed to capture his brother Tudebert, the one that had exiled her. Remember Tuderic in charge of, uh, of Burgundy, Tudebert in charge of Austrasia. Uh, Brunhilde has gone to Tuderic, gone, listen, you should have, uh, you should have Austrasia. Let's go after your, other, your, your brother there, your grand, uh, my, my grandson. Uh, and after a battle, Tuderic managed to capture Tudebert and he handed his brother over to their, grand, uh, their vengeful grandma and she, uh, well, not to put too fine a point on it, she murdered him. She murdered her her uh, her grandson, and for good measure, his son as well, her great grandson. And this meant, of course, that the next heir of this dead grandson, this great this dead great grandson, was none other than Tuderic. Of course, there was no other. There was no one left to inherit the kingdom. And so now Burgundy and Austrasia are once again unified. They're once again under the same crown, this time under Tuderic, who don't forget is still under the influence of Brunhilde. You're thinking, oh, maybe she's going to be able to uh, influence her grandson. Maybe she's going to be able to effectively again become the de facto ruler of this kingdom. And uh, well, it didn't quite work out like that. It worked out even better for her because in 613, Tuderic also died of dysentery. Oops. Guess who's now back in charge of two Frankish kingdoms in her own right once again? That's right. It's Brunhilde. She's now pushing 70 and she is again the queen regent of Burgundy and Neustria, this time through Tuderic's 12-year-old bastard son, Sigebert II, her great grandson, right, who bears the name of her original husband all those years ago, and she is, for the third time, the queen regent of a powerful Frankish kingdom. However, this was not to last. Not this time. I mentioned before that Brunhilde had faced some quite strong resistance to her regencies, both the first and the second times, when she'd been ruling through her son or then her grandson later on. And these nobles, they're not going to fall for it the third time. All the barons, all the nobles that owed Sigebert their loyalty, they refused to accept Brunhilde as, as regent. They just said, no, look, we've seen what you'll do, you, you've done in the past. We're not having you do it again. They refused to allow the young king to fall under her influence. And who did they turn to in order to secure their objectives of effectively deposing Brunhilde as the queen regent? None other than Clothar II, the son of of Fredegund. Don't forget, he's been poking away at these two other kingdoms throughout this period of conflict. He was all too ready to go after his mum's old rival. Even though Fredegund died a pretty unremarkable death, the feud continued through Clothar II, who leaps into action, raises an army, and attacks 
his uh, Ataxi's mum's hated rival Brunhilda, uh, who is betrayed just wherever she looked. Right, she was betrayed by the nobles of Sigebert's kingdom. She did her best to resist uh, the army of Clothar, but it was no good. She she had finally run out of friends, run out of allies, and run out of time. Clothar was able to capture Brunhilda, able to capture Sigebert. And also able to capture Sigebert's younger brother, Corbo, in addition, of course, to their great-grandmother, Brunhilda. Clothar killed the two young boys, very, very brief reign for poor old Sigebert II. And in doing so, of course, who was going to claim the kingdoms of, uh, of, uh, of Austrasia and Burgundy? None other than Clothar himself. He is their closest male relative. And so by murdering these two kids, he became... King of the Franks in his own right, he united Francia as its single king. And look, generally speaking, you know, we're coming down pretty hard on Clothar the Second, but generally speaking, he's actually remembered as a pretty bloody good king. He wasn't given over to plotting and scheming and ruthless cruelty like his mum Fredegund in a general sense. However, he made a very strong exception to this when it came to Brunhilde. Let me tell you. After capturing these two young boys, after killing them in order to uh, uh, to claim his, you know, his new kingdoms here, he turned his attention to his mother's hated foe. And the combination of Brunhilde's bad reputation in her later years, combined with his mum's hatred of her, meant that her death, even at the age of 70 or so, was not going to be an easy one. Brunhilde was charged with the murder of no fewer than 10 Frankish kings throughout her entire lifetime. Ridiculous charges. I mean, she was charged with killing her long-dead husband, Sigebert, who, don't forget, was killed by Fredegund. Uh, his dad, Chil- Chilperic, uh, Clothar's dad, Chilperic, right, who was killed by who knows who. Maybe it was maybe it was, maybe it was uh, Brunhilde after all. We don't know. Uh, she was charged with killing her own two grandsons, uh, who, remember, she plotted, she conspired, like she, she drove uh, to a war with each other. And also, hilariously enough, the newly dead Sigebert II and Corbo, who were, of course, killed on Clothar's orders, not on Brunhilde's. So, pretty ridiculous set of charges, but ridiculous or not, that's what they were. And, of course, there was no chance of her evading her fate. Now, the exact details vary, but it is said that Brunhilde was executed in a very grisly fashion by being torn to pieces by wild horses. Ropes were attached to her and then to four horses. And they were, the horses were then driven away in different directions and apparently ripped her limb from limb. Even the alternative stories, even if, she, even, even if that wasn't happened to her, there are other stories that say that she was dragged behind a horse until she died or, you know, other equally grisly, grisly fates. No matter which one is the truth of it, it was a nasty way to go. Even after the death of Brunhilde, or even after the death of Fredegund years previous, the story of this legendary rivalry, this, this, this blood feud between these two queens, it survived through the present day. And it's absolutely fascinating for its intrigue, its plotting and blood and guts and its horrible murder. But the question now, I guess we look at is, who won? I mean, you might have think you might have thought earlier it would be Brunhilde. Obviously, she outlived her rival, certainly throughout her lifetime, exercised a lot more political power over a much longer period. But at the end of the day, don't forget, it was Fredegund's son that became the king of all Francia after ex- essentially est- extinguishing Brunhilde's line here, and in doing so, uniting all the crowns that these two women fought over for their entire lifetimes, essentially. So, 
I guess in this situation, usually you'd fall back on, you know, comforting cliches like, oh, well, we're all winners for having taken part. But when it comes to Brunhilde and Fredegon, I don't even know that that's true, honestly. I mean, certainly the piles of bodies that were left in their wake weren't winners, nor were either of the two queens. Once the dust had settled, one was bettered by her rival and the other was torn to bits by wild horses. So I don't know, man, you tell me who won. Still, whatever the final result of this bitter feud was, you can't deny it makes for a bloody good story. And the operative word here really is bloody. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Brunhilde and Fredegon. What a classic bit of half-assed history for you there. Just had a bit of everything, didn't it? Well, didn't have any naval history in it. But hey, look, there's always next week. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. All the normal boring housekeeping stuff coming your way. Um, and for those of you who are still listening, thanks so much. I had a look at the stats, and it's amazing how many people just tune out from the, for this point. So thanks for listening to all the dumb ads. I mean, I do put them at the end so you can skip them, but look, I appreciate the people who stick with it. It's funny watching the graph, though. There's a huge dip in uh, in the number of people who tune out to this point. So if you're listening now, you're a real fan. Halfhousehistory.net's the website. You can find the feed for the show at anchor.fm slash History. Of course, say the same thing every week. Patreon.com if you want to support the show. You can support uh, you can support me there for as little as a dollar a month. And in the higher tiers, you get stuff like uh, behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, you know, you've, you've heard it before. Show notes, uncut episodes, all sorts of nonsense there like that. Um, and if you want to send in topic suggestions like Mariana did, thanks so much, Mariana, for this one. Halfhousehistory.net, there is a contact form there. I love to hear from you with any feedback or suggestions or anything else like that. Uh, and if you want to join the Discord, I forgot to plug the Discord the last couple of weeks, bit.ly slash join Riley's Discord. Scroll down and there is a section devoted to Half House History. Uh, we can get updates for the show. You can discuss episodes and, of course, um, uh, suggest new topics there. I do tend to trawl through that pretty regularly. So uh, have a look in there if, uh, if you're wanting to, uh, to suggest something. Anyway. That is that for this week. Uh, see you back here next week for more historical nonsense. Looking forward to it. Until then, leaving you with a question uh, posed on Reddit. It comes to us from Buga Soini. Uh, now, obviously, this story took place in what we term these days as the early Middle Ages. It's sometimes referred to as the Dark Ages. Not a great bit of terminology, but, you know, the Dark Ages is still something that uh, this period of history, uh, you know, is referred to as. And Buga Soini's question uh, has something to do with that here. Buga Soini asks... How did daylight saving time work during the Dark Ages?